0: Well, it is such a joy to be back with you actually. Uh I had the opportunity to be here. The first time I came, met with Pastor Darren. We navigated that very busy street and ate at that restaurant just across the street. And I was at a table there that I first heard those three L's. Love, lead, launch. And it's been a variety of settings where I've heard them since. And I've heard him talk about it each time with passion a little bit of different nuance, a little different insight into what it means for you to live that out as a congregation. You know, the thing I love most about it is uh, your pastor not only articulates those well, but he incarnates them. In other words, he puts skin on them. He lives it. And so I have every confidence that in the days ahead those will be even more true in the life of your church. Uh, one of my mentors, um, you notice I said one. I have more than one. Some of us need more help than others. Takes a village, in my case. And uh, and one of my mentors said, you know what transition's coming when you look back and there are all of these wonderfully rich memories of what God has done. And then you turn and you look ahead and it's a blank screen. It's like all that God has done, He's done in that place, in your position, in that past. And now, it's on to a new place. Every time I'm with your pastor, I never get tired of hearing the stories of how it began in a living room. Those first people who came to faith, the 1,500 that have been baptized, the church that have been launched, the people have been reached. And you can tell it's fresh every time he shares it. But when he turns that corner, it's not a blank screen. I mean, it's like big screen, 3D, multicolor. It's like the best is yet to come. I mean, the, the beyond is there. What days you have ahead of you. And how honored I am just in these moments to drill down deep on one of those words the first one I want to talk to you today about your love life and I want to look at one verse with you and if you have your Bibles I'd love for you to turn with me to that verse because it's in Romans chapter 12 now here's a conviction I have about Bible study and about presenting God's Word the smaller your text that you're talking from, the verse you're talking from, the more important the context so that you don't pull it out of context. And if I'm going to talk to you about one verse and one verse only, it's a short verse, it's critically important that we understand what's going on around it when we get this revelation of truth. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. He wanted people to have a letter that explained the Christian faith from beginning to end. The first 11 chapters are deep. They're what God does for us. The difference he makes in our lives. And then he makes a turn in chapter 12 from those 11 chapters of strong theology. He says, in response to all of this God has done for you, here's how you live it out. In the next five chapters, 12 through 16, he's just creating the map of how we live this life that he's provided for us. In the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, some of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture, he talks about our lives can be so transformed and filled by Jesus Christ that we're no longer controlled by the patterns of this world. We have a different set of priorities. We have different perspectives that guide us. And this individual transformation, he said, then moves us in verses 3 to 8. He talks about being in a family, being in a body. And each of us is an indispensable part of that body, and each of us has unique gifts and contributions to make. We are interdependent with one another we need each other and then he says this transforming work individually and this body he's placed us in collectively has now positioned us for our love life and that love is to be lived out first within this family of God that he's created brothers and sisters in Christ were to Love each other deeply. But as if that's not challenging enough, have you discovered it's easier to love God than love people? Even in the church, people. But he says beyond the family, a love that reaches to those less familiar to you and less like you. This is a love that is not bounded by sameness. And then, if he hasn't stretched us enough, by the time he gets to the the tail end of Romans 12, he says, and this love needs to even extend to people who've wounded you, enemies. So within that scope of what God does, And every part of it's important. You know, there are some people who get caught up in that transformation. I love the transformation, but essentially their relationship with God is individual and it's vertical. And God says, you know, if you say you love me, but you don't love your brothers and sisters, the truth's not in you. (laughs) Ouch. But have you ever tried this kind of loving without this kind of change in power in your life? You ever tried to do that in your own strength? I mean, you need a love in you that's not your own, that overflows, that reaches. Within that movement, the ripples of God's amazing, unfolding, redemptive plan in our lives individually, one verse, verse 13 This love life means we're going to have to share, share with God's people who are in need. I have two precious granddaughters. I happen to think they're the most special grandchildren in all the world, but I bet there's other grandparents here. I don't want to get into a fight about this, and I don't want to get into pictures for the rest of the time we have together. Their names are Amelia, six, and Gabby, three. They have introduced more pink to my life. (laughs) I've been to two pinkalicious parties in the last two months. I never thought as a grown man I'd be playing with Barbies. It seems like they have a hundred of them. Why is it that they must play with the same one at the same time? And those precious people turn into something scary. (laughs) Sharing. We're not born to do it. It's not natural to do it. It's supernatural. Share with God's people who are in need. Now, this is, let's make no mistake mistake about it, this is a financial challenge. You could literally translate this, share out of your resources with them. But let me tell you how it's really different in the family of God. In the family of God, it is true that sharing means Generosity. But it's also true that sharing means, stick with me just a moment, proximity. In other words, God calls me to be generous, but not at a distance. We are a church, not a foundation that writes checks to people who are unknown. We are a body that as we get to know the true needs of others and what will really help and what may hinder, then out of that relationship of proximity, there's the opportunity for true generosity. Sharing with God's people who are in need. Now, I really do believe this. I'm not saying this for PR or any other reason. I do not know of a church, and I've been to a lot of churches in the role that I serve, I do not know of a church more generous than Heartland. I do not know of one. whether that's globally the amazing things you've done for your community you actually give away people to plant new churches you give money to those people you give away to plant new churches this is a generosity mentality not a scarcity mentality This is a heart that recognizes giving is not losing, but giving is blessing and positioning for greater blessing. It is financial, but it's also something else because the word share here means koinonia, is the word koinonia, which means common. It's the word we get fellowship from it's an action but it's an identification with others in another place Paul reminds us how much we have in common because of Jesus Christ he says even though some may be Jew and some may be Greek different ethnicities we are in Christ Even though some of us are male and some of us are female, we are in Christ. Even though some of us are slave and some of us are free, there's different economic stratas. What ultimately defines us, not that our differences aren't to be recognized and celebrated, but what ultimately defines us is what we have in common in Christ. Christ is the ultimate affinity factor. I have no greater affinity than what I share with a brother or sister in Christ. Because no other common ground competes with the commonness of Christ, the unity of Christ. Now, Some people live life with a closed hand. It's about keeping, hoarding, protecting. And as the Spirit of God works in their lives, he begins to open the hand about sharing, about blessing, about reaching. I've seen the connection between a clenched hand and a clenched heart. A closed hand and a closed heart. This is a symptom of that. I've also come to believe that when God wants to open our heart, he often begins with our hand. Because you know these words of Jesus, where your treasure is, that's where your, your heart is also. Now, this love for each other is essential. They'll know we are Christians by our love. But here the verse takes a bit of a turn. It says this love, it's deep, but it's also wide. Love reaching. Practice hospitality, which literally means Pursue the love of strangers. Isn't that interesting? Uh, let me break that down. Two words, practice hospitality. Practice, first of all. We might think practice like practice means perfect. <laughs> you know, when it comes to relationships, you get serious about relationships, you can practice all you want, it never gets perfect. Deep relationships seem to have a certain amount of mess in them. The idea of practice is pursue. It means there's an intentionality. If you and I just do what comes natural, we probably will end up in relationships with people just like us. If we're going to want relationships that bridge our differences, it's going to take some intentionality. And it's going to take some intensity. Have you noticed that God doesn't seem particularly committed to our comfort zones? Have you noticed this? Does it annoy you like it annoys me? I mean, God, don't you exist to make me comfortable. But it's often just beyond the comfort zone where the action really happens in my spiritual life. And, and it's going to take a little bit more energy, intensity to get there. Pursue with intentionality and intensity loving strangers, people who are different from you or people who are less familiar to you. The word hospitality, we get our word hospital. The original idea was people were gathered in these places desperately in need of healing, but they were not there because they knew each other. They were there because they had a common need. Hospitality. Now I'd love to be able to say to you, Heartland family, that hospitality is something you kind of ought to think about. Or it's a good option to consider. The problem is biblically, hospitality is non-optional. Hebrews 13, 2. Don't neglect hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9. Don't offer it begrudgingly. 1 Timothy 3, 2. Titus 1, 8. If you're going to be a spiritual leader, you must pursue the love of strangers. You should not be a spiritual leader if all of your relationships are only with people like you. Now... I grew up in a very mono-ethnic setting. Your pastor was blessed to grow up in a cross-cultural setting. His parents are here. It's wonderful. When I was a senior at Indiana Wesleyan University, back in the dark ages, when I was there, it was known as Marion College, A speaker, Laurel Buckingham, came to campus, and he gave this challenge to us young ministry students, pray that God would call you to a community where you could spend a lifetime. Two things unique that struck me about that. One is the idea of being called to a community rather than being called to a church. The other was the idea of a lifetime when our average pastor spent three to five years in a place. So this 21-year-old kid prayed that with all his heart and believed I was called to Kentwood, Michigan, a suburb of Grand Rapids. And I thought I was called there for a lifetime. And in my mind, a good biblical number was 40 years, so I'm called to be there at least 40 years. (laughs) Moved to that community in 1979. Easy to be called to the community because there was no church there. So planting a church. When I went to that community, it was 98% Anglo, 80% of that 98% were Dutch, quite proud of it actually, bumper stickers, you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, and some of them, it wasn't (laughs) a joke, they believed it. I was quite comfortable there. Over the years, our church grew wonderfully. Over the years, we were privileged to plant 10 other congregations. You're well ahead of us on pace. Uh, Over the years, the community changed, but the congregation did not. Oh, this happens often. Today, there are 70 nationalities on the birth certificates of children in the local public schools. Forty percent of that community is wonderfully diverse ethnic minority. Now, I'd love to be able to tell you, I saw it. But sameness is blinding. Because it wasn't familiar, it wasn't noticed. In 2005, God cornered me. You ever had that happen? And said, Wayne, all the time you talk about this community you were called to, but the truth is you are now jumping over your community to reach people who drive in on the expressway next to you. And you say, we're going to permeate this community with the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, Wayne, do you mean all the community, like 100% of it? Or do you mean the 60% that looks and thinks and acts like you? Because if that's what you mean, at least have the integrity to stand before your church and say... By God's grace, we're going to permeate 60% of this community with good news of Jesus Christ, and the other 40% can. And I began a journey of learning, pursuing, with intentionality, with intensity, loving others. It was fueled by a new understanding of the Great Commission, which says we are to go and to make disciples of all nations. Ta ethne. It's the word we get ethnic from. We are to go and make disciples of all ethnicities, all people groups. And as I interacted with that verse, at first I thought it was all about evangelism, who it is to be reached, but I also came to understand it's about discipleship. Make disciples. And I became convinced that there were certain dimensions of my spiritual life as a disciple of Jesus Christ that would never develop if the only people I was around were like me. Sameness stifles. Sameness convinces us that what we have in common is our ethnicity or our economic situation or our gender or our background. And it blinds us to the fact that ultimately what we have in common is Jesus Christ, who shapes our identity. And I couldn't discover that. Without deep relationships with brothers and sisters who, in many cases, we had little in common other than Christ. At our university, we're trying to figure out how to live that, and I carry on my left wrist a little band, and on it's Revelation 7 9. There's a picture there, it's heaven. There's a throne. God's on it. His people are gathered. And the writer wants us to know those people gathered around that one Lord are from every nation and every language. Heartland Church, the nations of the world have come to you. You don't have to go across the world. You can go across the street. Indianapolis is one of the most diverse communities in America, right here in the Midwest. And you know what's really exciting? Revelation 7-9 is at Heartland Church. A bit of heaven is happening right here, right now on earth. Think about that. You are the answer to the prayer Jesus taught his disciples. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and may it be right here right now on earth as it is in heaven. Now you might say, "Wayne, that that truth is really important for the pastors to understand, or it's really important for the elders to understand, or our church ought to hear that. So let's make it personal. I am convinced as I study the life of Jesus that he changed our world more through a table than through the temple. Stay with me just a moment, because religious people in Jesus' day Use the table to exclude people. The only people who could be at the table were people like them that met their standards. And along comes Jesus, and he does not use the table to exclude people. He uses the table to include people. And the religious people couldn't get it. They would say to his disciples... Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? A woman would come and pour out her perfume and wash his feet with her hair, and they'd say, if he was a prophet, if he was really a prophet, he wouldn't let a woman get that close to the table. She's not like us. and Jesus says welcome take a seat at the table so here's my question who's at your table are they like you or by God's grace do you share a love and a faith adventure that whatever the differences to be celebrated, there's a commonness in Christ that unites. Who's at your table? Let's pray about that for a moment. Lord, you call us to a love, but you also empower us with your love. A love that cannot be fully contained or tamed. It reaches even beyond uh, those like us to those who enrich our lives because of the differences that mark us and yet the oneness we share in Christ. A love that extends even to those we need to forgive. And so, God, I pray today for those who may be yet to experience the transformation where it all begins and the family that will embrace them. But I also pray that this generous, gracious, Loving church will be so because each person here has a table that reflects your table. God, we're a little bit intimidated by that idea. We have this keen sense. We need you. We can't do it without you. So please, Lord, empower us and fill us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.